Well, uh, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Pat Lamini. I'm uh, chair of uh, the, the uh, LSE Public Policy Group, uh, and we're organising this conference. And the focus today is on um, assessing and thinking about ways of improving the uh, academic impacts on the climate change today. That's a, a huge canvas, but we're very lucky to have with us some um, very qualified speakers. Now I'm going to lose my list of people. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so Neil Hurst is from the Grantham Institute on Climate Change at Imperial College. And this is a very uh, one of the two Grantham Institutes. There's one at LSE, but uh, this is the Imperial version. Um, Philip Weber is uh, the chair of SGR, which I should know what it means, but I'm going to have to. Scientists for Global Responsibility. Excellent. But I'm, I am a, I'm a, um, becoming a visiting professor at the University of Leeds, so there is a connection. Excellent. Yeah, the bio slightly out wrong. Right. So you're becoming an academic. Well, I was an academic, but I'm becoming one again. Excellent. Returning <laughs> And Anna Westlink is from Leeds, who's one of our partners in the, along with Imperial in the uh, project that we're running on impacts. So Anna's going to kick off. Everybody's going to have 10 minutes. And then there should be lots of time for queries and questions and answers. So, now, the focus is in this session on starting with the academic aspect and thinking about projecting academic advice and recommendations and research to governments at the local level, at the regional level, the national level, and the international level. So we're sort of starting from academia in this session. We'll break at half past three, and then we have a nice tea break. And then we'll resume after that with a session which should be looking at business and the business type end of the climate change problem. And then we'll have some refreshments available after that. And then at uh, 6 o'clock, our final session is uh, looking, is, is solely run by, by government folk from DEC and, uh, um, <coughs> and the uh, Met Office and uh, Sir Brian Hoskin, who is uh, director of uh, Niels Institute. And so that will really be looking at it from the government sort of perspective. So if you could just sort of bear in mind that we're starting with the academic, then we'll do the business, then we'll do the government thing. Uh, I think it will help to foster the best connection with what the speakers are going to say. So Anna's going to kick off. I think you'll agree with me that national policies, many national policies ultimately need implementation at the local level. However, when you look at academic research, very little research is being done to inform policymaking at that local level directly and also very little research is being done to look at science policy interactions at the local level. In those two items most of the research is, is focused on a national level. Now with this study we want to help remedy this uh, gap in our knowledge. So I'm going to talk about a study that my colleagues at the Sustainability Research Institute in Leeds have done for the Leeds city region and it's a mini stern report. It was inspired by um, uh, the work that um, uh, Professor Stern did for the national level. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about the context. 
give you a flavor of the report. Obviously, I could be telling you for half an hour uh, about what the research actually did, but that's not the purpose of this session. I'm going to uh, talk about what work was done on top of doing research to try and create this impact at the regional and uh, local level. What kind of pathways I can uh, uh, map? Is there any evidence of impact? And then what lessons can we draw? I'm, I'm trying to do it in 10 minutes. I hope I get away with that. Now, the national context is the Climate Change Act, with targets of 33% reduction of CO2 emissions in 2020 and 80% in 2050. And in the Leeds city, most local authorities have taken over these targets as their own as well. So, just to remind you, the Leeds city region has about 3 million people and, and produces about 5% of the UK's GDP. Um, the Leeds city region, as a, a, um, a grouping of local authorities, has had an economic focus so far. And the, the Ministerial report was partly to look at is there an economic case for the low carbon economy? Because by presenting an economic case, it would fit in with the Leeds city region economic focus. However, the individual local authorities have separate agendas and foci and separate targets. So you have to bear that in mind. The Ministern study, Economics of Low Carbon Cities, Outcomes of a City Scale Ministern Review, um, had key research questions. Can we provide the evidence base to build a political, business or social case for investment in low carbon options? Um, and uh, I'll, I'll skip the rest of this slide just to, for, the, for the sake of time. Um, it gave very concrete financial arguments to make this investment. To, uh, it said that uh, more than 5 billion uh, of the locally produced uh, added value leaves the economy because of uh, excess uh, energy bills. So there is a commercial, commercial argument to invest in low carbon uh, technologies uh, to reduce this leakage. And uh, the, the study uh, discovered that uh, these investments would pay for themselves in four years. So the study came up with very solid economic financial arguments, but it all, uh, this investment would also create, they estimated, four and a half um, thousand jobs. So there's also a social case. Now, the, the way that the study was presented was very appealing. Um, my colleagues actually got in a communications bureau to help them design the graphics and also to look at the text to see whether it was comprehensible for non-specialists. This is the kind of graph it produces. And uh, the study also split up the region according to local authorities. So every local authority has the data at its dis uh, disposition to make the same economic and uh, financial argument and uh, the number of jobs created. And another way of presenting the results was to present league tables of cost-effective and carbon-effective technical measures. So it gives a lot of arguments for the lead city region and for the local authorities to go ahead and invest. Of course, the next step is where do you get the money from to invest, and I believe Phil uh, is working on that between other things. Now, so this was the, the research that was done. Now, this research was done all the way along in uh, consultation with a steering group uh, from the Leeds City Region, someone from the Leeds uh, City Council, 
someone from Kirklees was filled, someone from Arab and someone from CO2 cents. As I already said, the communica uh, communications bureau was hired to look at um, jazzing up the, the um, design of the output. We had several high-profile national and regional launches and separate reports were produced for each local authority, even though at the beginning of the work that wasn't a plan. But the local authorities themselves said, if you want to have an impact here, we need the numbers for our local authority. There's no point presenting us the regional figures. And sometimes the, num uh, the report was uh, released in advance of the official launch because the local authorities indicated we need it now for our political process. So all along during the research process, a lot of effort was done to produce results that were useful for the local authorities and came at a time that the local authorities needed. And um, my colleague Andy Goldson, who was the head of this project, has been to many meetings to present this work on invitation by local um, authorities. So the, the main message from this is that impact work means building and maintaining networks, many informal discussions with people in councils, presenting results in many different fora, and making sure that those results are comprehensible. Now, these are just two launch events. There was a big launch event in the Leeds City region itself, and I don't think you can read it very well, but there was a discussion panel with people from all kinds of um, fora, not just government, but also business businesses and uh, NGOs. And a similar event was organized uh, in Parliament. And again, the discussion panel had people from lots of different uh, uh, organizations, just like this evening, there will be a very mixed panel. Now, I talked about engagement activities. You, um, my colleague went to present uh, at five different occasions for the Leeds City Council in different uh, groupings. He went to present for Calderdale Metropolitan Bank Borough Council and uh, in Harrogate there was an event organized. Now one interesting thing to note is that of the 11 local authorities there are five who are really keen to work with, with this report. Um, six, the other six have really not uh, responded very much and it is because they are not working on this issue at the moment. I'll come back, I'll come back to this in a minute. Now we try to map, visualize these pathways to impact and this is something still very much in progress. It's, um, the diagram is showing, is showing the Leeds local authority with the offices, the different departments, the different levels in the departments it shows that the council and the chief executive and the chief executive sits with the directors in the um, corporate leadership team and it shows the points where the report entered this network of uh, actors and then it shows where it then travelled. So these actors have taken the report to different locations and presented it and discussed it. And sometimes people in one forum have taken it to another one. We're not quite sure yet what we can learn from these networks. We're still trying out uh, this kind of mapping. And for Calderdale, it looks different. So maybe the relevance of this mapping is to see that pathways to impact are different in different local authorities. Now, in terms of evidence of impact, for the Leeds City region as a whole, 
before the minister, there was really no climate change agenda to speak of. I already said it had a very strong economic focus. And very concretely, uh, now there is a green economy panel. So things really have changed. Doing the study put climate change on the agenda. And it's, it's obviously not just the fact that we did the study, but it's all the work that all the, all the uh, people in local authority have done to put it on the agenda. But the study definitely helped. And the outcomes support businesses and the, the political and the social case. For the Leeds local authority, climate change was already on the agenda. But the study provides very solid evidence for the climate change strategy. So it's written into the strategy now. So it really helps make the case. In Calderdale, cli the climate change agenda was a bit hesitant. It was there, but not very strong. It didn't have much priority. And it really helped to put climate change higher on the political agenda. And it provided evidence for the energy future strategy. In Kirklees, the climate change agenda was very advanced. They've already implement, implemented lots of different measures that um, help advance the climate change agenda. So there, the impact of the minister wasn't really all that big because they knew all this. They didn't need this argument anymore. It's, very, it's a very general argument. They need more detailed arguments, more detailed studies. In Harrogate, the climate change agenda is very much limited to internal workings of the council. And really, there's not been no change due to this report because there is no capacity amongst the officers and there is no political priority. So it's really interesting to see how one piece of work has a very different impact in different settings. So when, when talking to the officers in the local authorities where this report did have an impact, um, the reasons they, they to, uh, told me why it had an impact is partly because of the substance. It gives messages that they can take to politicians and they're appealing. It shows that CO2 production is possible and it also shows what technologies uh, are most feasible, so it provides a focus for implementation. It pushes the low carbon as a sensible method to advance the local economy. It presents solid financial economic arguments and this is very interesting, rather than environmental ones that could be seen as ideologically motivated. In my opinion, uh, economic arguments are also mo ideologically motivated, but this, this gives, of course, a flavor of the current <laughs> political climate. And um, it, it makes things more concrete. Uh, it changes low carbon from a very expensive thing. Don't know, quite really know what to think about it to something concrete that can be done where there is a real price tag that there is a, even a, an investment possibility to earn money with. Secondly, uh, reasons for impact that are not directly uh, related to the contents is the trust they place in the academics who've done the work, is the trust they place in where the data come from, the Climate Change Commission. Sometimes it confirms previous studies, sometimes it doesn't. So there, there's a bit of um, hesitation there. Um, also importantly, the presentations were uh, done in a way that was not academic, but very much uh, a real-world approach as they framed it. And interestingly, one of the uh, local authorities told me it's important that it's a local uh, university. So we trust you because you have local knowledge. So. 
reasons for no impact in the local authorities where uh, they haven't really done much with the report or nothing at all is either because the climate change agenda is too far advanced so they don't need this, the general <laughs> argument anymore or the climate change agenda is non-existent and there's no capacity to change things. So the message is very much to put climate change on the agenda it first and foremost needs political and policy work within the local authority and an academic study can't really change that. Now lessons to learn from this, I think this is the last slide, is really context is everything. If you can't connect with existing policy uh, and political agendas then it's very difficult to have impact and therefore the impact in the different local authorities has been very different. In terms of policy, the question is then, is a climate change strategy being prepared and can we contribute to providing the evidence? Is there capacity to act? The political agenda, is climate change on the agenda at all? And also, many people told me you need a champion, you need the leader of the council and or the chief executive to, to champion this, this topic, otherwise forget it. And interestingly, to frame environmental targets as economic development at the moment is a very uh, useful thing to do. Now, there's more likelihood of impact if you can present concrete, trustworthy, understandable and welcome results. And that help make a case for action. So, the message really is to academics, making impact takes a lot of time. It takes translation, it takes networking. And you need, to be, you need to make contact with what I call policy workers, those officers who are in the middle of things. They know how processes work, they know what's feasible in a particular organization. And making impact also requires flexibility and co-production. You, you need to be able to adjust your goals and the usefulness of your work might sometimes reduce the academic uh, what's it called, for the academic uh, uh, quality of the work. But at the same time, you need to maintain this academic credibility to be able to stand there and say, this is academically valid. And you need to adjust your working methods, for example, in project management, which is quite different in a local authority to what we're used to as academics. Of course, the problem for us academics is this extra work, this extra time, is generally not funded in... Um, uh, grants from the research councils. The research councils consider that you, need, you can apply for separate funding for knowledge transfer. Of course, the knowledge, that funding might, if you get it at all, it will come along a year after the event, which is far too late because you need to be doing this while you're doing the research. So the evidence from research impact research is not taken into account in the research council funding. Thank you. Thanks very much. Do we want to have discussion now or all uh, at the end? We're going to do it all at the end, actually. The next meal is going to... Right, well, delighted to be here. I'm from the, uh, the Grantham Institute for Climate Change. Which side do I click it? Yes, that's it. Um, at, Imperial, at Imperial College. Um, you can see that our objective is very much impact uh, related. And I'm going to talk uh, for a little about our what our efforts have been 
to achieve impact with governments, both nationally and internationally, on climate change mitigation issues. That isn't the whole uh, mission of the Grantham Institute, because we're also working with business to a large degree, and there is another sort of side of the Grantham Institute which is concerned with climatology, but I'm not, the part I work in is not concerned with climatology, concerned with climate mitigation. So we're fairly new. This is business in progress. I'll be very interested in discussion about, uh, uh, about how we're doing. Um, I think that's all I need to say on that one. This is my personal and rather primitive model of what we're trying to do. Quality research, a relevant topic, and uh, influential people or bodies. And hopefully, if you can achieve all those, you will have some impact. We're very much imb embedded in Imperial College. We're not a self-contained unit. Our idea is to leverage the expertise of Imperial College uh, for, this, um, for this purpose. This slide just emphasizes, therefore, that we are uh, in a wider group with very uh, um, excellent academic credentials. What we ourselves have done is to stimulate papers which we think will be particularly relevant to policymakers, briefing papers, uh, evidence and submissions, government discussion papers, and we are running a number of research projects and we involved in a lot of lectures and indeed occasionally in broadcasting. Um, alliances are very important. Uh, this is a very mixed bag in the sense of the nature of our relations with all these bodies that I've listed uh, varies uh, enormously. Grantham LSE, they are basically our partners, the other Grantham uh, uh, Hefke LSE, well that's very much related to this project. We have had some funding from Hefke via this project which the LSE organizer which is about uh, measuring, uh, measuring impact. Uh, we have other institutions in Imperial that are concerned specifically with climate change policy, Energy Futures Lab, the business school is interested in it. Uh, we have got funding from the Foreign Office's uh, Prosperity, China Prosperity program, so we've, we've, worked with, uh, we've worked with them. The Avoid O program, very important to us, started our first projects, or since I arrived, our first projects. Avoid O is a DEC-funded project, but coordinated by the Met Office about avoiding climate change. Uh, the EU Commission we've been involved with. Uh, we've had a research alliance for our first China project, or for our 2050 China project. We had an alliance with a body called IASA, International Institute for Applied Systems. And now I have to read that because it's called IASA, isn't it? Uh, they have a, 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 uh, um, an international energy analyst concern that does a lot of work for the independent panel on climate change, We're very highly regarded, and we've also worked with the UCL Energy Institute modeling team. They, we don't have an in-house international modeling capability, so that's why we've worked uh, with them. What we tend to bring is the expertise on the technologies that engineers in uh, Imperial College have. Uh, we've worked with Chatham House, I'll come back to that, and we're working with the uh, Energy Research Institute that's part of the NDRC in the Chinese government. 
So, and this is just to say that you know the people um, who are working in the institute tend to have connections. I'm not really an, a, uh, an academic. I'm a retired government official. Um, others are academics, so we have links with the Climate Change Committee. Sir Brian Hoskins is a member of the China Climate Change Committee. Uh, he's also members of the, both the Chinese and the American Academies of Sciences. Uh, my immediate boss, Simon Buckle, is a, a senior was a senior Foreign Office um, official, and I was at the International Energy Agency and at the predecessors of DEC. I was at the DTI. So we sort of start with quite a number of links with uh, significant organizations in the field. Oops. What are we doing? Yes. Um, we went out and um, held a number of events. I guess it's just listed, lists. Uh, 28 events. Quite a wide range of attendees, and they've included conferences, lectures, workshops, and so on. That's Perhaps this one is a bit more interesting. Um, this shows who attended our events. Academics, not very surprising, we're at Imperial College, the largest number, but a lot of business, uh, business people. And then if you look at the right-hand side, quite a number of government from inspection. That looks like about 300 uh, government attendees at our events, which um, I think is very, very important. And then we look at uh, sort of the nature of the roles of the people who attended and um, quite sure what the definition, our definition of leaders is, but these tend to be either fairly senior people or people that we think are particularly uh, likely, to be, likely to, be, to be influential. Um, a couple of examples of events that we had. We had um, we held an all-day event on the fourth carbon budget. The fourth, for those of you not familiar, the fourth carbon budget um, is far enough into the future so that you can think of really significant changes in infrastructure, and it's extremely demanding. So the purpose of this event, really, it's budget put forward by the Climate Change Committee, but endorsed by the government. And the purpose of them was, was immediately after the, uh, the budget had come out to bring together people from government and people from business, for business to face up to the implications of this budget, but also for government to get uh, feedback uh, about whether the business thinks that the budget is capable of implementing, whether they have confidence in the government's uh, process. So we held that event, we had senior people, we had the Secretary of State, we had the Chair of the Climate Change Committee, we had some very senior business leaders speaking, and we had a lot of government people. And we followed that up with a discussion dinner about the event. Having said that, this was not an event, you'll realize, that was primarily about our research, although, of course, we had opportunities to feed that in. From our point of view, we felt we were promoting climate mitigation, job, but also we were gathering, uh, we were making contact, we were engaging with a large number of the most relevant people in, uh, in the UK, and that has proved 
very useful. And here's another example of uh, we joined up with Chatham House, we had an event which was about uh, global energy governance, the institutions through which governments cooperate on energy policy. We had a really good attendance uh, from around the world. Uh, we had the, the head of the Chinese Energy Research Institute, the, uh, uh, the Director General for Energy from the Commission, um, the Secretary General of the International Energy Forum, another of the key bodies, uh, senior people from the International Energy Agency. We had the US State Department and the US Department of Energy, a lot of uh, people from around the world. And then we really were putting in our own, we put in our own discussion paper and uh, we tried to have some influence there. I'm sort of coming around my chart that I gave in the first instance. So this one is about um, topical issues. These are the main issues that we have uh, uh, that we have got in, got involved in. I think it's fair to say we've been a little bit opportunistic in selecting the issues that we we went in for. But you can see that there are major issues affecting climate mitigation. You know, what is China's pathway? First of all, to 2020, which is where China has set itself for mitigation target. Then 2050, then India. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on industrial potential for mitigation in industry. That's partly because we have industry expert in, experts on industrial processes at Imperial College, buildings efficiency, and I'll come back to these uh, analysis of carbon leakage of the EU ETS. Um, it's, it's been a sort of, uh, I said a moment ago, we've been a little bit opportunistic, I think, in how our program has developed. So, a little bit, so here is the, you know, a couple of stories, really, of how the program developed. We started off studying China and India and whether they could meet the short-term climate mitigation targets that they set themselves to 2020. Now, we did that because DEC, through the Avoido program, asked us to do that piece of, uh, that piece of analysis. Um, I would just say in passing that there's nothing like a commission, not just because you get financing, but also because if you're paying, you get their attention. I do think you know, the time you get the attention of government officials is when you come with your emerging conclusions for study, and you get people around, they're putting their government, you will get people's attention, more than you will probably for the final report. But you certainly get traction if you get people to pay. So they commissioned the, commissioned the study. When they got the study, the study emphasized that the things that will reduce, the policies that will reduce carbon emissions in 2020, we're actually talking about the level of emissions into are very different from the policies that are likely to reduce it by 2050. So when Dex saw that, they said, ah, well, why don't you just add a paragraph or two about 2050? <laughs> That's completely different. So we got another commission. We worked on 2050. And that study, unlike the 2020 study, we had the opportunity with DEC to go to Beijing to meet the senior people in China's own, now the Energy Research Institute, and also Tsinghua University, which is very influential on in this, and officials in uh, China's uh, National Energy Administration um, and to present our study and have discussions. 
And, the, and that had quite, quite a lot flowed from that, because having met these people, we found out what the ERI were doing. They were being brought over in any case by the government of the UK, and we were able to set up two joint sessions with them. One was a joint presentation on Carbon Outlook to 2050, which we did at Imperial, and the other actually was this joint uh, exercise with, uh, uh, with Chatham House. And from that flowed a joint project we have with the Energy Research Institute about global energy governance, which we have persuaded the Foreign Office to fund. So it's the sort of story that has taken us to, uh, and I think we're hopeful of further, uh, further initiatives. So, um, and here's another uh, <coughs> story. I'll be brief. I think I'm running out of time. Everyone is uh, nodding vigorously. I'm almost, almost. Uh, this is. Um, we got uh, the chief economist of the IA, Chapel Fatih Barol, quite famous in the energy field, come over and give <coughs> presentations. And we also got them to come over and present their energy technology perspectives study. And that brought a lot of people in. It enabled us to hold joint workshops with them. And it's enabled us, through one of our doctoral students, to have quite a big part in this uh, really quite significant uh, international study, energy technology perspectives, which they probably are going to accelerate a bit. We can come back to all this in discussion. I will uh, go right over that. It's not very, it's not that exciting. Uh, um, yeah, that we can, can you ask me about it if you want to. That's just the story of how we got involved in analysis of the potential for leakage, carbon leakage from different industries through extensive program of structured interviews. And we think we've had some influence on. Uh, uh, on the European Commission with that, with that work. Um, these are two things that we're not doing at the moment. We're sort of thinking about, would this be a good idea? Uh, policy breakfasts, you know, get some government people and business people in, perhaps a bit of research of ours, and have breakfast, short breakfast sessions on the ideas. So far, we haven't got up that early more, but we can try. Uh, and should we have, some people, sometimes this works for some people, I don't know if it would for us, a sort of club of business and perhaps government people, and you know, if you're members of the club, you would pay something, and then you would have access to our research, but also we would have organized events around your particular interests. So we, have to, we haven't done it yet. Have we, uh, um, uh, have we, have we had impact? Um, we don't know for sure on most of these topics. I mean, I guess this is the subject of today. We know that we are engaging the people in China who are working for the government on their climate outlook. We know government is very, very keen to control, to reduce carbon emissions, make it more efficient. So we know we are part of that process, and we're engaging it. If you say, are there specific things China has done or is doing that they wouldn't have done otherwise, we can't answer that, uh, answer that question. Um, and similarly with the UK policy China, we think the British government is better informed about the options open to China for climate mitigation as a result of our work. Has it changed their policy? EU ETS, we think we may have influenced decisions about how quotas on ETS must be issued. And uh, we, the ETP is very influential in publication, large part of the section on, uh, uh, on buildings is uh, attributable to our group. Will it change what people do? We certainly hope so. Uh, last slide. 
Um, this is just a bit of the, the information we have that hits on our. We, I would say, this may come up in discussion. I mean, we obviously have a website that's quite accessible and with quite a number of, of hits on it. There are, the, there are the numbers. I wouldn't say that at the moment that we were primarily sort of web driven. We're not putting great effort into, into blogging and that kind of that kind of thing. That's the right decision. I don't know. We're more putting our effort into uh, research and engaging uh, people. Um, we're about, however, to embark on a program of structured interviews of about 30 government and business and academic people who have been at our events and, uh, and who, with whom we've engaged. And they will be asked the question, you know, have you done anything different? Apart from many other questions, they will be asked, have you done anything different or are you planning anything different? And so maybe we'll have better information there. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, And uh, last but not least, Bill. Hello. Um. Right, there we go. So I've tried to answer this question about how research and expertise is actually utilised by local and national government. Um, and I'll, I'll give some evidence for what is my blunt summary in the next slide, actually. Um, I should say that. Um, I'm Scientists for Global Responsibility, of which I'm a chair, is an, is an NGO organisation. We've published quite a lot of material on the web um, uh, at sgr.org.uk about um, the influence of corporations on government policy, which is very relevant uh, to this and on climate change uh, itself. Um, and I'm also now working with the University of Leeds. I was um, working for 20 years in local government trying to reduce carbon um, and having some minor successes. So what I'm saying is very much informed by that and having discussed these sorts of issues at depth with people in DEC, DOE when it was DOE, DTI, um, various local government, government advisors, all the rest of them. So I've, I've met most of them at one time or another over those 20 years. So, to ask, the, try and answer the question, how is climate change research and expertise utilised by local and national government? Well, I don't think it is, on the whole, actually, to be perfectly blunt. Um, and I'll, gi I'll give various examples. So, you may remember something called the Sustainable Development Commission. Um, that was producing excellent advice for government. It was funded by government. Um, but it's, it's been abolished. So that, I think that's a primary example of how government doesn't listen and didn't want to listen to very good advice that was being given about sustainable development, climate change, how the economy wasn't working properly. So that was abolished for what I would say were political reasons, not to save money. The, that, that would have saved money. The Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, that's gone as well. Sustainable development has been stripped out of many organisations. It no longer exists in the Audit Commission. This isn't, this isn't anything to do with this government. This is actually typical of quite a few. There used to be a very good body called the Local Government Management Board that supported sustainable development through local government. That was abolished by uh, a Labour government, actually. And Jonathan Porritt at the time, who then became head of the Sustainable Development Commission, 
does teach choose rather bad career paths, but um, he said they had this Rolls Royce, and basically the government had just ripped the doors off the thing and scratched it with a key. That's his viewpoint on it. Um, the other piece of evidence is that um, Nicholas Stern, who's now Lord, probably Sir Professor Nicholas Stern, I don't know how many titles you can cover in what order, but he produced an extremely influential report which, which did change the rhetoric very much, I would say. And he and colleagues have published very detailed papers, and at the time when the Stern report came out, he said there should be a green fiscal stimulus to counteract the um, horrible recession that we're encountering at, at the moment. And um, various reports were published about saying what particular things should be done that were ready to be done, that would pay for themselves, and none of that's happened. So that was ignored as well. And um, I did speak to him and various um, scientific advisors in government about, I said, um, well, do you get much influence to talk to government? And um, they said, well, I'm in there every day. And I said, well, and they were just very frustrated by the fact that government, it was Gordon Brown at the time, uh, was listening, basically. They, they were obsessed with the banks, but they couldn't think about anything else, and they couldn't join up the fact that you could do something very useful by spending some money on the environment and creating a very a virtuous circle <coughs> of economic development, carbon reduction, meeting carbon targets, creating jobs, combating the recession, and all the rest of it. And at the same time, as you know, we now own quite two rather large banks, Northern Rock and Royal Bank of Scotland, but the government also refused to intervene on the boards of those banks to say to them, you should lend on these areas. They were, they were, they were terrified of doing that. I think it's called moral hazard, but they wouldn't do it. And um, the other factor, I think, which goes on, you, the Daily Mail, for example, isn't renowned for its uh, green credentials. So when there was an idea that when you did up your home quite a bit, that you should do some other things to it to improve its energy efficiency, so the um, Daily Mail got hold of that, and they called that a conservatory tax. So in other words, if you're going to stick a conservatory on your house, the idea that at that time you should improve your house, reduce its energy consumption, save yourself some money, etc., they deemed the wrong thing to do. So, those are a few examples. I shall go on. It's all gone very quiet. Um, so, what does climate change research say? It says that early action is necessary. It says that early action is cheaper than late action action. You actually need strong regulation and taxation to create jobs and create a more sustainable economy, which is very counter to what I would say is the prevailing view. The other point is that you can't keep on having 2% growth the way things are, but that's always been the target, although nobody's meeting it now, and that's seen as a problem. Consumption's excessive, lack of action will be disastrous, and the UK is ideally placed, although the table may be in the way of that, for marine and offshore wind. Um, but it's been a real issue to get offshore wind off the ground, or on the sea, I should say. Um, but the, the funding for marine power ha is, is frankly really pathetic. So, so 
there's, there's some the key points. So, right, the view from local government. Um, when I was in local government, my local authority, because they're a bit cash-rich at the time, don't hear a lot of that these days, this was around 2007, and they'd sold their shares in the local airport, so they had a bit of dosh. And then the various political parties, as they do, because it's a hung council, they're all arguing about what the policy should be. And the Green councillor said, well, I won't support you unless you do this programme for home insulation. And then the Liberal... So the Liberals got together with the Greens to outflank the Labour and the Conservatives. And then Labour and Conservatives realised they'd been outflanked, so they thought, well, outgreen them. So what we had was a sort of green um, war to spend more money, and that's what happened. So I thought I was going to be running a programme of about two or three million pounds, and then they had their, they'd already published their budget with this budget in, and then after they'd done their negotiations, and they usually last all night, and they'll go and have beers and fish and chips and everything, and then they came out and said, ah, um, actually, we're going to give you, a, it's going to be a free programme for everybody in the council, and we want them all to have free carbon monoxide detectors. So, basically, our £3 million or £6 million programme is now a £21 million programme. And we've been out to tender for a sort of £3 million, And nobody told us where we were going to get the money for a million pounds worth of uh, carbon monoxide detectors. Although they did tell us where the money was coming from, but that wasn't true. So, we had a bit of work to do. But it, anyway, to cut a long story short, we did spend £21 million in three years. And we offered everybody in the whole area free cavity wall insulation, free loft insulation, a free carbon monoxide detector, energy advice, debt advice, all the rest of it. And um, we could show from the research we did on that that by spending that money, it paid for itself in overall economic terms in, in about five to eight years, and that the benefits would accumulate... In, in economic terms, in health terms, and all other and various other impacts for another 40 years for the lifetime of those measures. The only snag for the local authority was they'd forked out a lot of money and the benefits weren't coming back to them. They were diffused around, so they'd created jobs or they'd um, saved people money on their fuel bills. But of course they didn't get that money back. But that was clear. And lots of other local authorities wanted to do that, and I've been to meetings with hundreds of local authorities, and they all said, yes, we really want to do this. The slight problem was the economy had taken a nosedive, and they all said, well, we can't afford to do it. They couldn't come out with that money, so there had to be another funding mechanism. And what, what has come out now is the Green Deal, which it's been hard enough to give people free insulation up to now because people say oh well I don't believe this cavity wall stuff they've read that oh, you put the cavity wall insulation it all falls down to the bottom of the cavity which isn't true or various things like this so people think why would I but it isn't on people's agenda they're not thinking about this at all uh, so you need a trusted person come along like the local authority with the health authority like like we did and offer them this and even if you sell it even them for free they're very suspicious you might be better off trying to sell it in, in some respects. So, but now, instead of that, the Green Deal will mean that you'll sell them this thing and you'll need to 
basically sign an agreement to pay money onto your electricity bill and uh, then it will pay for itself. So I think that's going to be a harder sell. So I think there's big doubts about the Green Deal mechanism, which basically is a payback mechanism for this sort of uh, investment. But I think the key point about local government is that gov local government almost doesn't exist in this country. That's my view. Compare it to the rest of you, Europe. Local government's hardly got any power. Local government is, is not even an arm of central government. It's more of a little finger of, of central government. Lo local government does what central government tells it to do. And it's got very limited power, really, to do much. Although, theoretically, this is supposed to change, but I find it hard to believe. So, basically, local government does things it has to do legally because it's terrified of legal action, and that's what drives it. There are some local authorities, such as Birmingham and Manchester, big ones, who are willing to take action. And um, what Anna was talking about, the sort of investment we need to do this work is billions and it will pay for itself but you've got to find those billions and there are people with billions of pounds around at the moment it's just getting the money out of them or convincing them to do this work local government can be part of that and that's some of the things I'm working on but local authorities are cash limited and under a lot of pressure so the role of central government is crucial because they can say to local government, do that, and they just say, how high do you want me to jump, basically? And you get, because central government gives them the money, and they largely do what, that's what, if, you have, if you've got the funding, local government does it. Um, so, just, the reality is, it's only very recently there's been a strategy for energy, and that's true across various governments. At least there is a strategy for energy. Now, the government says it supports the market, and, um, you know, the market will deliver. But in reality, it does all the wrong things to support the market, because it sends out very ambiguous sing signals. You know, one, it's, it's, it says renewable energy is no good, then it has a feed-in tariff, and then it thinks, well, it's too successful. So they withdraw the feed-in tariff for solar energy. So the, seeing it from... The perspective of uh, a company, and I, I'm also on the board of a small energy company, a not-for-profit energy company. Well, it's not that small, but it is not-for-profit. But basically, you're, as a business, you've got to plan. Uh, really, you want to plan three years, five years ahead. So you've got to think about something that a market for that you can sell. You've got a product and all the rest of it. So if there's these very uncertain messages coming out of government, that's a real, real problem. Um, and what I would contrast is this lack of a fiscal stimulus for the green sector compared to the huge sums of money that have gone into the banks. And they're just sitting there making their bank balances look okay so there isn't a run on the banks. But those banks could use a very small proportion of that money for very good effect. And the government could use a very small proportion of that sort of finance in the same way they're prepared to underwrite wars in daft places to billions of pounds. They should do this. This is a war. You know, you know some of this research, it's not, it's not even rearranging the, tech, the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's researching the positions 
of the deck chairs on the Titanic with a view to maybe moving them. That's my concern. <laughs> so, um, right. So, and the funny thing is some of the market have asked for stronger regulation. I remember SO and various people like that, uh, big supermarkets saying, give us strong regulation. We need it. If you gave us strong regulation, we could plan and we could make money out of this. It's good. We want it. They said, no, we won't do it. And we've got all these targets, but we haven't got, in my view, anything like sufficient things happening to implement this. I mean, um, in one of the earlier talks, you were talking about China's mitigation. I'm sure they are mitigating, but their emissions are going through the roof. They might not be going quite as much through the roof as they might otherwise have done, but the, the emissions we're looking at, climate emissions, are disastrous. We're, going, we're talking about shifting the earth into a state of ecology, which it ha hasn't been for millions of years. I think it was the Permian, when, there were, when everything lived in the sea, presumably because the land was too hot. Sorry, Phil, could we keep it focused because we've really got to move to the discussion. Certainly, yes. You're telling me I'm going on too long. Yes. Right, okay. I thought <laughs> I was focused. I thought I was focused, but I might have been going on too long. Okay. Some other examples um, about the um, CERT system, which is stopping now, and Green Deal's coming out, but we haven't got the memorandums of agreement ready, and that, that's really of concern as well. So the so practical things... Carbon emissions reduction target was a funding mechanism for uh, carbon emissions, which funded a lot of work. Um, it fifty percent funded cavity wall insulation, say loft insulation, and such like. That's stopping. Um, so some of the reasons I think there is a problem is that I think the treasury is innately conservative, and it, I think it. They don't understand the ecological limits or circular economy concepts. Um, there are very strong links, and the Levinson inquiries rather shown this in other ways, between government and um, conventional power and big business. The renewable energy and conservation industries, which are relatively small, are forming consortia and are starting to lobby, but they're, they're not doing it very effectively, I would suggest. Um, the finance sector is possibly even more conservative than the Treasury in terms of lending money, with some exceptions. They have typically looked for large and what are now, I would say, unrealistic rates of return. Um, they, they, were, they were used to investing in things with der in derivatives, which is very un... You know, if you, think if you don't believe climate change, why would you believe a derivative? Um, and things like market bubbles have been invested in, which is more unreal than climate change. So you've got to question what, what's going on there. I think it's almost like a, a, a parallel universe. Um, the other thing is there's a very strong nuclear lobby, and that has squeezed out a lot of thinking about renewables, because we're very well placed for renewables. And unfortunately, the nuclear lobby has undermined a lot of uh, there are actually there is actually some misinformation put out by the nuclear lobby many years ago about the costs of undersea cables, for example. There's a, we've got a big military-industrial complex and there's uh, arms export subsidies as well, but the UK is safer than it has been for many years. 
So there are, there are things going on which are counter to what the reality is, um, and I think that's a key point. And if you look at the funding there, and these are government figures, you look at military R&D, health and environment R&D, and uh, that's the, the money on renewable energy. So there's something wrong with that balance. You, know, you, might, you might not want it the other way around, but I'm just making that point, that there's a, there's a real imbalance. And the, the strange thing is that the lack of that sort of thinking about renewables is a security issue too, because it means we're dependent on long fuel supply routes, on uh, force projection in places like Iraq and the Gulf and all those places. Final slide, the insurance sector has actually been saying we need to do something about this for a long time because they see this as a strategic risk. Pension funds have billions of pounds to invest and we're talking to people like that about what they would need to enable them to invest because they look like the long term because they think beyond the political cycle. And government support is rising, albeit slowly, and there is a price convergence now on fossil fuel and solar PV, offshore wind. And there is a strong future for marine energy, if only we can get somebody to fund it. So that's done. Excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, well now we can go to uh, queries and questions. And um, the way I'd like to handle this, if possible, is, first of all, uh, We've got the microphone. So it'd be incredibly helpful if you could talk into the microphone. Uh, secondly, could you just say who you are briefly? And uh, then uh, the third thing really is that I'd like to collect two or three questions before we put it to the panel, otherwise we'll just get too many one on answers. Alright? So the floor is open and very keen to hear your questions. Yeah. Don't think we need a mic, do we? Uh, well, it's good for us because we're podcasting. Yeah. Hi, I'm Amelia Sharman from the Grantham Research Institute here at the LSE. Um, my PhD research is looking at the impact of climate change scepticism on public policy. Uh, and I would be really interested in the views of the panel on whether you think that uh, there is more scepticism um, in public policy these days, or less? Um, and if, if less or more, at what channels is it coming through? Thanks. Thanks very much. And uh, you wrote a brilliant blog on this, on British politics and policy. <laughs> Hi, my name's George Watson from um, Carnaby Co. We're a consultancy and interested in this issue at the moment and how academic world is linking up with business and government. Um, Anna, um, thanks for your thoughts on the Leeds example. I was really interested um, to find out from you if there were any plans for how you might transfer what you learned through that process and how Leeds might transfer that to other local authorities and areas that are interested in doing a similar thing because it strikes me something like the Mini Stern report and a lot of the practical side of um, undertaking that project there's a lot to be learnt there and, and passed on, so I wondered if you had any plans and if so, how you could see that working. And maybe one more, 
I'm Nicola Ranger, also from the Grantham Research Institute at LSE. Um, I would be grateful if you could say a few words about the, the modes of influence. And a lot of what you've said already is, is, is um, about how academic researchers motivated action, and, and particularly in circumstances where the, the context is ready to be motivated in some way. Uh, is there any other ways in which academic research can can influence policy in terms of specific decisions, or is it, is it mainly about motivating action? Right. Well, uh, we've had uh, one particular question from George to Anna, so let me start with, with you, and then we'll come on to Neil and uh, Phil about climate change skepticism and motivation. Anna. Thank you. Um, thank you for your question. At the moment, the same sort of study is being done for Sheffield and Hull regions. And before Leeds Commission or Leeds City Region commissioned the study, Manchester had in fact already done something similar, although with a completely different methodology. And in Manchester, it had a, a great impact on, on policy. And apparently, there's also interest, for example, from London and also from other uh, countries internationally. So this this method is is really appealing at the moment, and I think, well, I tried to explain in the brief time why it appeals so much. It really appeals to the current um, political uh, discourse. So yes, it's, it's being used. Uh, should I say very briefly on the other two questions mm -hmm. as well? Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to answer anything more uh, in general about climate scepticism, but I know that there's at least one local authority where some of the councillors don't really believe in climate scepticism, uh, don't really believe in climate change. Um, but this, this way of presenting the low carbon economy with economic and, and um, uh, job arguments to say that this, this pays back for itself and is really worthwhile, which is some of your uh, presentation was also mentioning that, it just makes solid economic sense. So whether you're climate sceptic or not, you have to come on board. Um, motivating action. I'm, I don't really have a comment on that at the moment, so I'll pass on to the next person. Okay, so um, climate change scepticism, you seem to be just puzzled that banks get more money. Well, I think... I think it, isn't that like a little bit naive, you know? Wouldn't we normally expect that government gives more money to things that are crises? Less money to but climate change is, is much a crisis. I think they should have given money to the banks, but they should also have thought about other real emergencies. Just because you've got an emergency today and you've got an emergency in 10 days coming down the road doesn't mean you should just spend money on the emergency today. Um, I don't think it's naive. I think it's naive to think that they should just spend money on banks. I really do. I think, I think they've made a fundamental mistake. And I know other econ econ economists have made the same point. Some of those banks should have been allowed to fail, possibly. Um, but that's another whole, that's another whole area. Um, on, on climate scepticism, is there more or less? I think most, I'm not sure that, I think people are confused more than anything. They don't get clear messages. I think people are more, aware that this is an issue, but I think the primary reason why people, even if they think there's an issue, don't do anything, is they're not clear what they can do or what their role could be in relation to this. 
they see it as a very big problem and they don't understand how they fit into this big problem. Most people are thinking about how they're going to pay their bills, where they're going on holiday, whether they've got a job, you know, how their kids are doing at school. They're not thinking about these things. Um, I think there is strong, unfortunate scepticism coming out of some of the media, which is very unhelpful. And I think some of the so-called balance approach, which the BBC tends to take, has been very unhelpful because if you've got 99 scientists saying we've got a problem and you've got one saying there isn't, they typically get one of the 99 to have a debate with that person. And that I, I think that's extremely misleading to the average person who can't tell the difference between what, uh, what's going on. I think what academics can do, to go on to that point, I think it's very valuable for academics to come up with an independent view and studies like the Minister. And we are coordinating meetings with finance people to actually see if we can facilitate the finding of this sort of investment in conjunction. So there, there um, academics are taking a facilitative role that is backed up by solid academic research. And that is, that is very useful because it's seen as not politically motivated and you've got a strong a strong case. Thanks. Neil? Ah, we'll just quickly examine Can I just probe you a bit? Because there's a bit of a difference between you and Anna and Phil, right? In the sense that you're operating at a kind of rather uber elite type level, aren't you? And they're down at the grassroots. So. Embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us your view of climate change skepticism at the uber elite level? The, you know, the Nigel well, Lawson well, I think uh, my impression is that uh, you know, public opinion and indeed opinion amongst people uh, in government and so on is pretty uh, steady and firm that you know, the great majority of people believe what mainline scientists are saying about climate opinion. And it is a very, very serious problem. Um, you know, it's true that there are very energetic lobbies, and maybe they have some successes, but I don't think they are really greatly swayed by public opinion. I think, by the way, probably been slightly swayed by the weather. People uh, you know, have a very cold thing, and people do sort of say, oh, gosh, you know, this can't be, but that's rather... Um, uh, but I think what has happened, really, is that the recession has pushed it down, has pushed climate change down again at that time, and the UK has happened everywhere else in, in the world. Uh, there's a very big difference, actually, between in the UK and in America, where uh, crime, climate scepticism is absolutely rife, including amongst very senior people. And it's funny, there was a blip after Hurricane Katrina, which, I mean, whether there's a connection between Hurricane and climate change is highly debatable, but nevertheless, it was a weather event, and it caused a, quite a spectacular blip in American public. I mean, suddenly a lot more people believed in climate change, but that is has worn off and starting from rather a low level of faith in climate skepticism, it too has been sort of pushed down, pushed down the agenda. Um, uh, but I guess I, I don't entirely agree with that. Sorry, you know, the, the government isn't concerned about I'm doing I too would have criticisms of some of the policies, but I think um, the 
government is concerned about climate change and has done you know, quite a lot of, um, introduced quite a lot of major policies with big policy implications and big cost implications to try to address it, perhaps not enough. Um, modes of influence. Uh, the only thing I would say from my experience is that if you have a piece of quality research which does have a specific bearing on things that the government is deciding today, um, government people are very interested in it. You know, they, they genuinely want, they do not read academic journals, for the most part. There are exceptions to that, but for the most part, people are making them, they not read. And they're not even advised by people to read academic journals necessarily. Perhaps they should be. Um, but they are very interested in the question of whether there is truly evidence-based research which is relevant to decisions that they're going to make. So not, you know, if you have that, it's not really that difficult to get through the door. Okay, let's move to the second round of questions. Up the back there. Uh, <coughs> Hello, I'm Emily Wilkinson, a research fellow at the Overseas Development Institute. Um, I'm inf interested in the influence of research and, and communities of researchers on, on policy, on humanitarian policy, food security and disaster risk management. Um, and as this, um, this, this conference is about evaluating the impacts of climate change research, um, I think an interesting question is around um, agreement or otherwise between academics and between researchers um, on what kind of policies, what policies should look like. And I got the impression from the three speakers that there's kind of agreement on that, that there isn't, that I didn't really get a sense that there were kind of um, different groupings or, or, or conflicts within uh, researchers working on this field. And I wondered if you could comment on that, particularly around issues of um, of regulation and that the regulatory path being uh, uh, particularly important, and also the idea of you know this this that it makes solid economic sense, the economic arguments around um, mitigation. So I'd like to get your views on that. Okay, thanks a lot. Could you? Hi, I'm Will McFarland, also from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, my my question is a bit about. Um, about the, the moment of uh, introducing research into the policy making decision and we've kind of seen a bit of a spectrum of research recommendations spend a, a few million pounds what might be pocket money uh, on energy efficiency measures and get it back immediately and on, on the other hand by the way your model of growth and the UK's consumption is completely out of control and you need to change that um, and, and Neil you kind of just mentioned at the end um, if, 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 if politicians and policy makers are thinking on a subject your, your research will kind of be, might be more easily um, kind of assumed into that process. But how can you how can you put research that isn't perhaps politically acceptable, or isn't a la mode, or isn't uh, part of an existing policy circle? How can you how can you put that into the policy sphere? Thanks a lot. I'm a member of UNAUK. UNAUK branches discuss this quite a lot. Um, one of the things, public education, 
um, that should be taken seriously because they can also drive from one another side the speeding up public policies and action by councils and uh, that when you say public education educating the media and the politicians as well and uh, another thing that I go really mad when I hear about cut price flights cut price holidays um, who is go so our children are going to pay many times for the cut prices we do foolishly they are going to and I have two children in their 30s okay um, and uh, some of the things uh, you know the flights uh, I may go too much too far <laughs> Um, I'll stop there. Okay, thanks very much. That's okay. very interesting. Okay, so we've got uh, academic consensus. We've got uh, achieving impact with research that may be not politically uh, very congenial uh, to the powerful, and we've got uh, public education. Uh, let me start with uh, Neil, because you seem to have oh, issued <laughs> public education more or less in terms um, of networks of... I think, I think I was on every other subject. Because um, there is academic consensus. There are lots of aspects of you know, the way you should regulate and the most efficient uh, um, means of reducing coloration on which academics do differ. There's no doubt about it. I think you know, there is a very strong academic consensus uh, that um, climate change is a huge problem for age. Uh, there, um, uh, and that it's, uh, I think there are a lot of mixed uh, messages, I would say, there's quite a strong consensus about academic that it's a huge problem, that it's a market failure, that governments have got to intervene in some way. There are certainly differences of emphasis on academics to what extent you, know, you go down a sort of carbon price mechanism or you go down a uh, a sort of um, support for individual technologies mechanism, though I suppose I think there's some consensus that you know, some combination of the two probably makes. Of course, there is no consensus about nuclear power, which is very ideological. Um, uh, it's interesting. I mean, there does seem, for instance, I think there does seem to have emerged a bit of a consensus that feed-in tariffs seem to have been more effect, cost-effective than. Uh, um, cap and trade for renewables. Uh, um, I don't often offer that as a certainty, but the academic consensus based on evidence does seem to have moved. So I think there are areas where, uh, um, but if you say, should you have uh, contracts for differences for subsidies, or would it be better to have a flat price subsidy or um, should you have uh, capacity payments you know there are, frankly there are different issues on these things so yes academics setting off one but I think you know there is an academic consensus and it has tended to move governments over time and <coughs> academics work in the field are part of uh, are part of that um, 
the question of uh, um, to see what, what was the next one. The next one was about political acceptability of possible. Oh yes. So are you well, are you guys in the imperial just at the more technical level, so you didn't worry so much? There's, there are lots of areas where it's a bit like, you know, if you can't, because there's all, there are all, you know, there are a lot of ideological things that, uh, you know, conservatives tend to believe in markets, they tend to believe in less public spending. Left wingers tend to be on the opposite side of that. And as I was saying, nuclear is quite a sort of ideological. So, um, Yes, if you go to, if you say, oh, I've got a piece of research I want to prove to uh, conservative government that uh, um, you know, markets aren't such a good idea after all, well, no, that's going to be a difficult, a difficult sell. Maybe you'll affect world. So I think there is a, a, there is a dimension of this which is ideological, and where, yes, it would be naive to suggest that politicians are completely open to research. Uh, but I would say immediately below that level, if you're talking about things like, you know, should we have a carbon price? Or I, I think, for instance, in coming forward, you may be right or wrong, but in coming forward with that um, uh, electricity market reform package, which is, I suppose, the centerpiece of, of, of sort of new climate reduction policy now, you were on the supply side anyway, uh, I think the government did listen to academic opinion, we put in some views, I think, and I've been part of academic discussion of this, and there's no doubt that, you know, highly reputable experts in energy regulation can differ on whether it's better to rely on a carbon price or it's better to rely on a, um, uh, subsidizing individual technologies, whether they, so, um, uh, but I think politicians are willing to listen to evidence I mean, I'll just cite an example, which I think is a good one. At Imperial College, in, in the uh, uh, energy trading, the, the emissions trading scheme, the European emissions trading scheme, one of the central platforms, one of the questions for the next round is how should we issue the permits? And the sort of ph philosophy of that, to some extent, is well, if you've got an industry with very high carbon emissions necessarily, which is very, very much in competition uh, with overseas companies, then you should give them you should give them their permits. And the reason is that if you don't, the business will filter overseas because you're putting an extra burden on it, and the net effect will be the same business will take place with somewhere else that aren't the same carbon regulations, and the net effect will be an increase in carbon emission not a reduction. Whereas if you have a business which is not in competition quite the same way, not open to leakage of that form, you don't give them the things, they have to buy them, and that is a cost that will go to consumers, um, but you will get your carbon emission. So the question, so we did some research about you know, which, for, which businesses fall into which categories, and we did that by very extensive uh, in-depth structured interviews with the uh, um, sort of the managers of a large number of businesses across Europe. And we've got some data as to uh, their views on it. Now, you know, it's, it's opinion, so 
What comes out of it, though, is slightly different from what the lobbyists of the same company is telling, telling government. And you know, that is, in, that is to a degree, objective information, which governments of the European Commission these days are very interested and do listen to. So, there. Yeah. Thanks. Phil. I'm trying to remember what the two questions are now. Well, one was about academic consensus. There seems to be a fair degree of consensus on the kind of uh, home improvements and uh, energy efficiency things. And the other was about public education. I think there's a strategic agreement. I think there's a tactical uncertainty. That's the way I'd put it. Everybody agrees it's a big problem. It's a question of precisely what particular market mechanisms you use. You'll always have a disagreement about, I dare say. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that most of government does believe this. My, my issue with government is that government is poorly structured to deal with this. It's departmentals. Its, depart, its departments are not structured right to deal with climate change. Um, for example, we've got the Department of Energy and Climate Change, which is insufficiently influential in the bit where the places that count. If you look at government spending, you know there, there are very powerful government spending areas which are not being sufficiently influenced or. So DEC is, uh, unfortunately, in my view, a minority player, and a much more important thing would be what's in the Treasury Green Book. So just to take one controversial example, um, um, discount rates, which are routinely applied, which routinely discount the value of things you do in the future. Well, there's a whole body of academic work saying, suggesting that negative um, I can't remember if they're positive or negative, but anyway, they're suggesting that actually you should apply, I think it's a positive discount rate for some work of an environmental nature, because the benefit in the future is going to be even more, because it will have avoided further damage in the future. So there's a real issue there. That, that, would be a, that would make a fundamental difference to how the Treasury agrees or doesn't agree with... Um, various government investments. And I think we all recognise we have to work in a marketplace. But for some, when you've got this huge market failure, you do have to influence the market. And I suppose, yes, how you do the carbon pricing or all of that is quite important. But I mean, one of the things which, for example, if, if we are going to get real carbon reductions as opposed to less carbon increases, we do need a genuine technology transfer um, from the first world to um, China and India. And I don't think that's happening sufficiently. I don't think it's sufficient. Unfortunately, there's a big global, there's a lack of sufficient global agreement about what to do, which would create sufficient technology transfer to enable China and India to follow a more genuinely low carbon path than they are able to at the moment. But there isn't anything in place, and then you end up with this problem whereby you'd have a manufacturer here which you could impose a carbon tax on. Of course, it would make no sense at all. But that, that, that's, um, that's a proof of the market just not working um, okay. for climate change. Thanks very much. Emma? Um, I think all science for policy is ideological, and if you get the impression that here we're more or less in agreement, it's partly because 
that's the kind of research that's being funded at the moment. And if the message that the minister comes out with is to say it makes solid economic sense, it's not because that should be the argument that convinces people. I believe personally that the environmental uh, argument or the social responsibility argument should be more important than the economic one. But in the current political climate, it just won't work. So if you want to have an impact, you need to somehow uh, align yourself with the discourse, the current, the dominant discourse that, that is there, even though as a person or, or even as an academic discipline you might not agree with it. And the, the other um, problem that I see is that the funding is available for academic research that aligns with this hegemonic discourse, but there are lots of more, much more critical areas of research that look, for example, at fuel poverty and at, at uh, uh, environmental, purely environmental issues. And that, but that kind of research has a lot of difficulty of finding funding. So there is this mutual influence of science and policy, not just in what they do, but also in what gets funded. So yeah, this is building up of, of hegemony. Doesn't mean that there aren't al alternatives, but you don't hear of them as much. Well, we've come whizzing up to the end of the meeting, so it raised me to thank the speakers very much indeed, and I hope you'll join with me in, uh, in the